0: Morning, Chelton. Good, Good to see you. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter five, uh, beginning in verse three. We'll be in three to twelve this morning, and I encourage you, if you have uh, the capability to, make sure you have a copy of Scripture in front of you, whether it's on a device. Uh, Or on a hard copy Or even just if you can find the bulletin That you hopefully received on your way in uh, You're going to want to see the whole text together In one shot this morning There's a number of things that will make a lot more sense to And it will be very clear to you to see uh, If you have the whole scripture passage In front of you So as you're finding your way to Matthew 5 uh, I want you to do something for me I want you to imagine someone They can be someone that you actually know um, Or it can be someone That you make up a creative person in your mind that you're you're seeing, but I want you to visualize someone that you would consider fortunate, someone who should be congratulated or maybe even envied because they are so happy. You might know that person. You might be actually visualizing someone on. You might be visualizing an Instagram page where uh, you're picturing someone who seems like everything is always perfect with amazing experiences and and you actually feel yourself being a little envious because it seems like they're so happy. Or you might be imagining someone who is surrounded by a ton of friends and they're always smiling, laughing, the life of the party. Or you might be thinking of someone who is wealthy and carefree, goes on lots of vacations, their home is amazing. Somehow it doesn't collect dust like yours does. Um, their kids are well-behaved and always use their manners, they have a great job, and they're well-respected, and you can just fill in the details of whatever you want to see there. But before we go to our passage this morning, I just want us to clearly understand that we all have a picture. Whatever you visualize, you have a picture in your mind of what it means for someone to be blessed? That's going to be really important as we go into this morning's passage. Last week, we began a new sermon series called God's New Humanity, where we are studying through what has been famously called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that Jesus is teaching his disciples and a large crowd, but he's teaching with more than just his words. He's actually doing something that's a little more subtle, but just as important. He's actually reenacting the life of Moses, as if to say, I am the true and better Moses. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that Moses is the man that was used by God to lead out, to call out, to create a new people, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was to be the people through which God would show, this is what relationship with me is like. But over years and years of continual failure, Israel failed to live up to their end of the covenant. And despite God's patient, loving rebukes and calls to repentance it just wasn't happening. They weren't representing him to the world well. But in an act of grace, God did not give up on humanity. He didn't abandon humanity, but instead he leans in. He actually moves closer. So we've been celebrating for the last month as the birth of Jesus. God becomes man. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came And through the first couple chapters of Matthew, if you were here last week, Pastor Bill pointed this out to us, Jesus is actually showing, I am the true and better Moses, who, as Ephesians says, has come to create in himself a new humanity, and that all who would turn to Christ in faith, he begins a work in them, giving them a new heart, renewing them, putting his spirit inside of them, enabling them to live different, empowering this new humanity to actually walk in obedience and to be his representatives on earth. And in this famous sermon, Jesus begins to unpack what this new humanity is like. And the sermon begins the very well-known passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's commonly called the Beatitudes. You might be familiar with that. The word beatitude comes from the Latin for blessed are, which is a pattern that you will see throughout this entire passage. So I encourage you to follow along with me as we read Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Before we look at each one of these beatitudes individually, I want us to kind of step back and think about... This idea of blessed. The biblical idea of blessed means uh, to be fortunate, to be the recipient of divine favor, the sort of person that ought to be congratulated. It's often translated happy, which is in the right direction, but it's not simply an emotion of happiness, but instead it's a pronouncement of what God sees and thinks about that person in that moment. They are blessed. It's a state of being. In, the, in Greek, the language that the New Testament was originally written in, there are two different words that both of them are translated into the English word blessed, but they're two different ideas. The first one is more of a wish or a prayer, may the Lord bless you, or a wish, to so blessing on the sick, may God bless the sick. Or it's more like a, maybe a formula, if you want to call it that. Uh, if you do these things, you will receive blessing." In other words, it's acknowledging there's something missing and either a prayer or a way to achieve a blessing. The other direction, the other word, is more of an evaluation, which is recognizing there is already a state of being blessed, of happiness and of good fortune. In other words, look at what she has. She has this. She's blessed. Make sense? This is the one that we're looking at, in The Beatitudes. It's evaluating, it's stating, the, this is what is already blessed. This is, which means we really have to be careful that we don't read these beatitudes as a formula to achieving the blessing of God. These are not commands given for someone in order to gain a blessing that is not there. It's actually not a way, uh, per, it's not providing a pathway to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's not saying, here's how to become a Christian. It is saying... This is a description of those who are already in the kingdom of heaven and how they ought to and will live. It's a description, it's an evaluation of what is already true. In uh, in his work on this sermon, Martin Luther says that Christ is saying nothing in this sermon, the whole sermon, about how we become Christians but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian and in the state of grace. Entrance into the kingdom is not about how good we are. It's not actually something that's dependent on us and our goodness. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is a supernatural work of God in the lives of those who turn to Christ and are united with him in his death and in his resurrection by faith. And we receive the forgiveness of our sins, the adoption to be children of God, not because of who we are and what we have done, but it's a gift of love and of grace that we have received. And this sermon talks about what life is like for those who have already received the blessing and salvation of God. So why does Jesus start this way? Why does he begin the Sermon on the Mount with this discussion on blessing, evaluating what he says is blessed. I think it's important, and he does so on purpose, because if we think about the way that we naturally read the teachings of Christ or the Bible, it's very easy for us to turn it into a list of rules, where we think that if we follow these enough, then we will please God. As if what Jesus is most concerned with in our lives is our morality and our obedience. It's not what he's most interested in. I heard a pastor put it this way. He said, imagine a homeowner invites someone into their home who they believe to be a painter. And they think to themselves, yeah, I could use a little work. Upstairs bedroom, could use a fresh coat. You know the hallway where the kids walk by with their greasy fingers, like touch that up, maybe a few other places. But then this this painter comes in and he puts on a hard hat and he picks up a sledgehammer and he starts taking out walls. Right? The homeowners all of a sudden like, whoa, whoa. What did we just bring into our home? This is not what I expected. Because if you think that Jesus comes into your life just to fix things up a little bit, just to improve your morality a bit, just to make you a little bit more obedient, then you've missed the whole point as to why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to do a little bit of touch-up work on you and me. He came to build something totally brand new. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. Jesus came to give new birth, an entirely new way of living, a new value system, new priorities. Everything is new. And he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way when he says that God talks about the, Jesus in this passage, talks about the kingdom of heaven, which is his way of saying that the first thing that you realize about yourself as a Christian, he's speaking, is that you belong to a different kingdom. You're not only different in essence, you are living in two absolutely different worlds. And Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount in such a way to highlight that to say this is totally new. It's totally foreign to the way that we think. It's the kingdom of heaven. And this is such an incredibly loaded passage um, that many churches will actually do an entire series on the Beatitudes. And We're doing it in a week. So that means that we are not going to do justice to the radically counterintuitive message that Jesus presents here. But I really encourage you to read it again. Spend some time thinking about it. Study it. There's way more in here than we're gonna talk about this morning. But just to kind of help us as we walk through each of the Beatitudes step by step, I'm gonna put a little bit of a summary up on the screen. Uh, If they're helpful for you, great. If not, uh, ignore them. If they are helpful, you can take a picture of them, write them down, or revisit the the website uh, to actually access the PowerPoint as well later. But let's walk our way through these. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit has nothing to do with dollars and cents, but has everything to do with our acknowledgement, our humility, our humble acknowledgement of our spiritual poverty and need before God. It recognizes that we have absolutely nothing in and of ourselves to bring to God that is of worth. The new humanity are comprised of those who are poor in spirit, who don't boast in our good deeds, but actually recognize our, poor, our poverty, how poor we truly are. And in that place, turn to Christ for help. We just sang this a few moments ago in the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace it's actually those those who are blessed in the kingdom of heaven are those who acknowledge their weakness not pretend that they're rich and strong and what's the promise why are they blessed and it says because theirs is the kingdom of heaven to understand what Jesus is doing look down at the end of verse 10 and you'll see the exact same phrase Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see the exact same phrase. Jesus is creating bookends to the Beatitudes. And what he's doing is really important. He's doing something, it's a literary technique, it's a a writing device. A technique that says, uh, it's called inclusio. And these two bookends, which are exactly the same, are designed to help you understand that what's inside of them... Explains what the bookends mean. In other words, what does it mean? What is this whole kingdom of heaven thing? Uh, Who belongs to the kingdom of heaven? What is life in the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's everything described within those two matching bookends. He says this is what this is his package deal. In other words, this is, this is, these are a set of descriptions of one group who are all of these things all at the same time. It's not just for select or special Christians, but for all who belong to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying this is what a Christian is and what a Christian ought to be, and he includes everything in this package. And he continues in verse 4 to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted And those who mourn is not, again, so much about the physical uh, mourning because you're walking through disease, uh, you're battling some sort of sickness, or you've lost a loved one, but it has more to do with the sorrow of repentance. You can hear Psalm 119, 136, where the psalmist says, streams of tears flow from my eyes. Why? Because your law is not obeyed. Those who mourn are those who lament the sin in this world, but not uh, they, they watch the news and their hearts are broken. They see sin and its destructive nature in this world, and it grieves us. We weep for the things that God weeps for. But it's not just the sin that's out there. Those who mourn are the ones who see the sin in their own lives, and it grieves them. We're unsettled by it. It moves us. We're hurt by our own sin. Those who mourn will be comforted. I want you to notice the tenses, how they change. Verse 3, but the book ends, starts off by saying theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. They have it now. They belong now. But then verse 4 and everything in between those book ends, you'll see is what tense? It's future. Will be. Divine passive, God is going to do these things for them. They will be these things. Which makes me ask, well, are these blessings that God is talking about, are they now or are they later? And I hope at this point you can answer, yes, both. That's right. If you've been with us in our Advent series, you would know that there are aspects of our salvation, aspects of the kingdom of God that are already present right now. And we experience them in a very real way in part to deposit, and there's an aspect of the kingdom of heaven that is not yet, and it's still off in the future, and we await the fullness of the kingdom of heaven as it will be when Jesus returns one day. And so this new humanity who grieved the reality of their sin and the sin in the world will be comforted, which has a present tense and a future tense part. They will be comforted, meaning they actually have it now. They have the comforter, They have the Spirit of God, which is a deposit guaranteeing that their sins have been forgiven. And that deposit guarantees that one day, when Jesus returns, he will destroy sin and death once and for all, and in the process, wipe every tear from our eyes. Those who mourn will be comforted, and their sorrow will turn to joy. Verse 5 Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Notice that Jesus does not say blessed are the timid. This is not a personality trait. You know, there's people that are a little bit more weepy, a little bit more timid. These are not personality traits. These are actually characteristics or descriptions that are a result of the presence and work of the Spirit of God in our lives. They're evidence that we are, have been born again into the new humanity. None of these are, are, are common for any of us from birth. They're all supernaturally brought by the Spirit of God. The meek in the Old Testament are those who are described as having an accurate view of themselves, which expresses itself in humility, gentleness, and respect for others. They have a right view of themselves, and the promise is that they will inherit the land, which speaks to a measure of being with Christ in the blessing, being content in Christ now with the promise that one day we will rule and reign with Jesus on his new Earth. Those, the meek, those who humble themselves before God are trusting that he will lift them up in time. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness, who ravenously pursue intimacy with God. Notice he doesn't say those who have arrived at that, but those who continue to pursue righteousness, a rightness with God, a oneness with him. They will be filled More and more as the Spirit draws us day by day, moment by moment, to greater intimacy with God himself as we know Christ, until one day when we will be with him, we will be spotless like a bride dressed in white, and we get to see our Savior face to face. Verse 7, blessed are those merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy or compassion, love are markers of the new humanity as those who have actually received and experienced the mercy of God, we become those who show compassion and mercy towards others. Our hearts are moved towards someone in need, someone hurting, and our hands follow in action. And the promise is that we can expect to receive mercy both now and the day of judgment when we stand before Jesus at his return. This has some really important implications for us. This means that God's posture His attitude towards his children is one of compassion and love and mercy, not frustration and disappointment. Hugely important for us. That is a blessing. That is fortunate. That is amazing. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Pure in heart goes beyond just the right things on the outside and pushes into our motivations, into the core of who we are. Psalm 24 says, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The new humanity, Christians, we're not concerned with just doing the right thing, but we are those who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those who have been purified by the blood of Jesus have confidence that we have his presence in us right now, And one day we will see him again face to face, which leads us to living transparent and holy godly lives in front of God and others. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers are not just those who try to keep bad things from happening, but are those who actually bring wholeness and work to make completeness and reconciliation and restoration the experience in this world who work to reconcile differences between individuals and call people to be reconciled to God. For they will be called the children of God. One of the greatest compliments that I think I've ever received in my entire life is from those who know me and my dad, who look at me, whether it's something I've done that's super goofy or I laugh like him or something really important to me. And they look at me and they say, you're just like your dad. Here's the amazing thing. Peacemakers, those who work to bring wholeness in this world, that's what they will hear. But it's not about your earthly dad. They say, you look just like your dad in heaven. Because that's what he does. He is about restoration and reconciliation. What a blessing to be said, you look like God. She might look at all of this and think, wow, well... That should get a warm reception from the world, from everyone around us. Those are amazing things. Um, but Jesus actually says the opposite. He actually tells us we ought to expect difficulty. Blessed are those persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted, excuse me, because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verses eleven and twelve go on to explain it a little bit more, to say that we are to rejoice and be glad when we are mistreated for the name of Jesus, because we belong to this new humanity. We're two totally different kingdoms. So as you kind of come up out of the details of all those Beatitudes and step back for a moment, what are we we supposed to do with this? Because for 2,000 years, book after book has been written on this. And I don't know what to do with these Beatitudes. I don't even know how to process them. I mean, I spent hours these last couple of weeks reading detailed commentaries on this. I have eight or nine on my desk if you want to go take one. And I don't know what to do with them. I mean, they're beautiful. I'm drawn to them I'm like a moth drawn to the flame, right? It's, they're intriguing, and, and I'm curious about them, and they're, they're awesome and beautiful, and yet they're totally strange and confusing, I don't even know how to think about these things. Jesus congratulates those that the world pities, and he calls the world's rejects blessed. Jesus describes his idea of being blessed as the way of weakness and surrender. And it seems super foreign to me. Like, I don't don't know how to process this. He doesn't talk about blessing in the same way that we do. Think back to the person you had in your mind earlier, how you defined blessed. We generally think that being blessed has more to do with our material possessions or our comfortable circumstances. And yet Jesus doesn't play by those rules. He's in a whole different game. When Jesus talks about being blessed, he speaks in terms of spiritual realities that are connected to the gospel. They are things that cannot be taken from you. He doesn't anchor our blessedness to something as flimsy as our circumstances that can fluctuate with every minute. Jesus' idea of blessing goes against everything I've ever known in my entire life. Because the way I was even born, I mean, think about, think about kids. You don't, uh, kids don't naturally think about, you know, see a toy in their friend's hand. They don't think, well, blessed are the meek. I should uh, humble myself and... Make peace and let them enjoy the toy. No, they steal the toy and smack the other kid with the toy. They don't make peace, right? It's not natural for us. Everything in this world goes against what Jesus just said is blessed. And we are being discipled constantly, no matter where we are, by the world in its own version of blessing. To show you what I mean... Author and pastor Ray Ortland wrote this brilliant short article. It's called The Unbeatitudes. You can Google it, it's, you'll find it right away. Unbeatitudes, in which he presents the world's version of the Beatitudes. And I think as I read it and you see it, it'll be actually easier to believe that. He says this He says, Congratulations to the entitled, for they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for the world lies at their feet. Wow. Two totally different pictures of blessing, right? And here's the reality. When you leave here this morning, actually, that's not true. As you sit right now, you are hearing conflicting messages of what is considered blessed. You're hearing two different promises of happiness and fulfillment. And every single day, anywhere you go, everywhere you go, whether it's at work or at school, whether you're online or watching TV TV, or anywhere you go, you are confronted with two competing kingdoms, with two versions of blessings, which both promise life in the end and are two completely opposite and opposing worldviews. The question is what are you going to do with that? Who will you believe? Both require acts of faith. Whose voice will you listen to? Who will you trust? Now, we're sitting in church, and so most of us, I think, would say, well, I believe what Jesus says, and that's great. I really want to believe him too, but I don't think I really do, and I'm not sure you actually do either. Now, don't get me wrong. You might think you believe Jesus. You might agree that you should believe Jesus. But faith and belief are not just mentally agreeing with something. Faith and belief have more to do with your loves. And what you love is displayed in what you do. So if you actually want to see whether or not you really believe what Jesus says, you have to look at your actions. You have to look at your life. And when you look at your life and you put the Beatitudes up, you kind of work your way through, I'm not sure I actually believe him as much as I think I should or as much as I think I do because I don't really want to be poor in spirit. I know that because I work really hard to cover my weaknesses because confession is really uncomfortable. When's the last time you actually confessed? And I mean real confession. Letting someone see what is inside of you, acknowledging you are poor before the Lord and before a friend. We don't mourn over our sin. Instead, we actually work really hard to ignore it. We cover up our sin, and we come very numb to the sin of the world around us. We don't really believe that the meek are the blessed ones. We don't really have an accurate view of ourselves. We're full of pride, which either shows itself in arrogance or, or inferiority. We hunger and thirst after many things other than God. He is regularly drowned out by the noise of our lives, by our busy schedules, and pretty much any excuse we can come up with. It is Sunday morning, so we regularly lack mercy and often show it on Sunday mornings, especially those of you who have children. I mean, think about the people that you're closest to. How often and how easy it is to not show compassion and mercy towards those who are closest? Who are part of your family? Who are your roommates? Who are your closest friends? Which actually reveals the true you to your children, your spouse. We don't believe that the pure in heart are the blessed way. is the blessed way to go, because we often hide, living behind a fil- living a filtered life behind a screen, protected in isolation, afraid to let anyone see the real us. Reconciliation is hard. We either avoid conflict altogether or we go in like a bull in a china shop and make a mess of things. And we really don't embrace and rejoice when we face something difficult for the name of Jesus. We complain. Do you see what I'm saying? So what do we do when we recognize that we think we believe Jesus, but our lives show something different? What do we do when we don't believe Jesus as much as we think we do? Well, in that moment, we do what Christians always do. Christians are those who repent. We turn to Jesus. We return to him and we believe the gospel again. We believe the good news of what he says again. Because the good news is that God loves you even when you don't believe what he has to say. The good news is that these beatitudes are not a pathway to become accepted by God. You are accepted by God not on a basis of how much or how fully you believe and live out these beatitudes. You're actually loved and accepted by God based on how much Jesus believed and how much Jesus lived out these beatitudes. And Jesus is the only one who totally believed every word of these, who lived his life in total submission to these Beatitudes to his Father. He earned the blessing of God. And in his loving grace, he turns to you and says, Let me give you some blessing that you cannot cannot earn on your own. And so when you are tempted, today, to live in line with the unbeatitudes, when you find yourself doubting that Jesus's path of blessing is really better, it's another moment to turn back to Jesus and to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe you, and I don't even have faith to give you. And do you realize what you're doing right then as you practice that? You're growing to be poor in spirit. And you're saying, Jesus, I come to you, and I don't have anything to offer to you. My hands are empty. And what Jesus is doing in that moment is he is making these beatitudes true of you. He's making it true of you. He's making you more and more aligned with him. He's giving you faith. He's growing faith in you. And he has promised that one day he will complete the work that he has started. That every day you will believe him more and more, that you will grow into these as you walk with him. And that he who began this good work will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I believe you and I don't. Would you help my unbelief? Would you help our unbelief? Would you tell us again what you say is blessed and would you give us the faith to trust you? Because it's hard. It's confusing because every message we receive in the world around us, all of our experiences say that something else is blessed. Would you make us into this type of person? Would you help us to believe? Would you help us to live out lives that are true, that trust you, that trust you? We praise you that you are the one who began a good work in us and you have promised and you are faithful and you will complete that good work in the day of Jesus Christ. So we love you and we pray this all for your glory. Pray this for our joy. We pray this for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.